0: The following message was recorded at Shades Valley Community Church in Homewood, Alabama. For more information and resources from Shades Valley, please visit us at ShadesValley.org. So if you haven't already, I do invite you to open your Bibles to Matthew chapter 5. As you heard just a moment ago, today is the first Sunday of the season of Advent. And during this season, uh, you can tell from the scripture reading that we are going to be continuing our series through the Beatitudes. And we're going to be doing that because advent and the beatitudes actually have much in common both of them are invitations they're both invitations Uh, advent invites us to come and adore christ like we just sung about just a few moments ago the beatitudes invite us into kingdom life with christ they're both invitations advent invites us not only to look back at Christ's birth, but also to look forward to his second advent when he will come and bring his kingdom to consummation. The Beatitudes invite us to live in light of that coming kingdom and all of its promises. Advent and the Beatitudes both hold out to us an invitation. It's it's the invitation to life in Christ now and forever. It's an invitation of hope. That's the theme of this first week of Advent. Like we just heard just a second ago, we lit the candle of of hope. And that's the very thing that Advent and and the Beatitudes are inviting us into. And is it not the very thing that we need? Shades, I don't know about you, but I find myself constantly coming back to this. This is what I need. I need hope right now. Shades, hope is the door by which we enter into the Advent season. And this morning's beatitude opens that door, inviting us in to the greatest hope that there is. This morning is an invitation to hope. I want you to see that with me. Let's see it in this beatitude. Read Matthew 5 and verse 8. Jesus says, blessed, which if you've been with us through this series, you know that we are translating that word, truly joyful. I think that's a more accurate translation. So truly joyful are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. This is Beatitude number six. And by our point in this journey through the Beatitudes, I hope that you're beginning to see the Beatitudes as a whole are kind of like a coloring book. In other words, what I mean by that is that the first Beatitude and the last show us an outline of the picture that Jesus is giving us, the picture that we're looking at. And each subsequent beatitude colors it in, gives us a little bit more detail, fills in the picture. So, if you remember, the very first beatitude tells us we are being shown a picture of those who are truly joyful, and it's a picture of the poor in spirit. The poor in spirit, which from the Old Testament context we learned, the poor in spirit are those who are devoted to Christ no matter the cost. So that's the picture. The outline of the picture, those who are truly joyful, it's the poor in spirit, those devoted to Christ, no matter the cost. And now all of the other Beatitudes begin to color in that picture. They begin to show us what it looks like to be devoted to Christ. The first thing they show us is that it will come with the cost. The poor in spirit will be those who mourn. But then we're shown how they'll respond, they're empowered to respond in meekness and gentleness because ultimately their thirst is one for they hunger and they thirst after righteousness they hunger and thirst to live a life in line with god's kingdom and in line with god's will so they are a people of meekness and they are a people of mercy we are told do do you see how the beatitudes are like a coloring book they're giving us this technicolor picture of the poor in spirit the truly joyful here's what they are like but not only that They also give us a full-color picture of why they are truly joyful. What does the first beatitude say? Give us the outline of why they're truly joyful? It's because theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And then all the other Beatitudes, with all of their promises, color in that picture, giving us the details of what this promised kingdom looks like. It's a kingdom of ultimate comfort, we're told. A kingdom in which we receive an ultimate inheritance. A kingdom where we experience ultimate satisfaction. It's a kingdom where we are shown ultimate mercy. Do do you see how the Beatitudes are like a coloring book, giving you a full color picture of the kingdom? Shades. Do you see the technicolor invitation? into an abundant life of true joy in Christ. Jesus is extending it to you Himself. He's extending this invitation to you by, by picturing, drawing this picture, painting this picture for you of those who are truly joyful and why they are truly joyful. And in our Beatitude this morning, Matthew 5 we're going to see this invitation yet again. Jesus paints more of the picture and He does it with a new color, the color of ultimate hope. This morning, I want us to see that color clearly. I want us to see how it brings the entire picture of the Beatitudes into sharper relief. I want us to see all of that by asking the two questions that Jesus keeps on answering with every Beatitude. Who are the truly joyful and why are they truly joyful? Let's ask that of verse 8. Who are the truly joyful and why are they truly joyful? So, first question. Who are The truly joyful, according to Matthew 5, 8. The answer is pretty simple to see right there in the first half of the verse. Truly joyful are the pure in heart. Who are the truly joyful? Pure in heart. Awesome. What does that mean? What does it mean to be pure in heart? In our cultural context that is a little bit hypersexualized, just a little bit, when we hear the word pure, our brain immediately goes to sexual ethics. And that's not a bad thing. Like Jesus will go there just a little bit later in Matthew 5, get down to verse 27. We'll get there next year. There's not much time left in the year. We will get there. He will get there, but right here, when he says pure, he is painting with a broader brush. Because in in the first century, in first century Jewish culture, if you'd been a Jew in the first century, when you heard the word pure, the first thing that popped into your head wouldn't be lust or sexual ethics or anything like that the first thing that pure would make you think of would be the law torah first five books of the bible genesis through deuteronomy you'd think of that because much of that law pertains to ritualistic purity how can I come before the Lord and, and be pure? The, the psalm that actually is the psalm behind, it's the Old Testament background behind our beatitude this morning, it's Psalm 24. And it poses this question, who shall ascend the hill of the Lord? Who's going to come into the Lord's presence? It's the one with clean hands and a pure heart. You got to be ritualistically pure in order to enter into the presence of the Lord. And if you are a first century Jew, You were surrounded by a group called the Pharisees who'd only expanded upon all of those laws with endless lists of of external rules that needed to be followed in order to keep oneself clean, oneself pure. But notice, notice what Jesus does right here. Jesus emphasizes not what's external, like the Pharisees, here's all your external rules and lists to keep. Jesus doesn't emphasize what's external, he emphasizes what's internal. Look at it again truly joyful are the pure in heart the pure in heart now in jewish thought heart is the entire inner person we don't we don't really use the word heart that way we use the word heart to talk about our feelings or our emotions uh, affections The, the jews didn't use the word heart like that they used the word guts like that um i i love it uh philippians uh one and verse eight the apostle paul tells the philippians that he yearns for them with the very guts of christ jesus we don't translate it that way our versions say affection or something like that because that's what it means but the literal word there is guts with his intestines try that out in your romantic relationships love you with all my intestines no the jews didn't use the word heart to describe their feelings. The word heart for them, it included your affections, but it was bigger than that. It included your, your thoughts, your will. To talk about the heart is like it's like using the phrase with everything in me. And that is where Jesus emphasizes purity. Not, not merely externally like the Pharisees, but internally. 19th century Anglican Bishop J.C. Ryle summarizes this well when he says, the pure in heart are those who do not aim merely at outward correctness, but at inward holiness. Truly joyful are the pure in heart. Do you see, do you see how this adds a new and necessary color to to the picture that Jesus is painting of those who are truly joyful. See how this adds new color to everything that Jesus has already said. If you think back to the first beatitude, when Jesus says, truly joyful are the poor in spirit, those who are devoted to Christ no matter the cost. When he says that, he's not talking about people who are merely devoted to Christ out of duty. Well, being devoted to Jesus is the right thing to do, so I just got to muster it up, I got to do it no matter what it costs me, that's just what the book says. It's the rules, and I follow the rules. No, when he adds this new color of pure in heart right here, this shows us that the poor in spirit, they're not those who are devoted to Christ out of duty, but out of delight. Their external action of devotion flows forth from their internal affection. The external and the internal match. they're actions and their affections are one they're united they are pure in heart this affects everything that jesus has said not just the poor in spirit think back to uh just a couple of weeks ago when we talked about hungering and thirsting for righteousness when jesus says truly joyful are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness he's not talking about people like the pharisees who hunger and thirst to keep a, a list of external deeds so that they can be seen by everybody else and patted on the back for all their righteousness. No, he's talking about people who have been transformed by the Holy Spirit of God to have hungry and thirsty hearts that love to live in line with God's will because they love God and they long for Him. They don't care anything about being seen. They care about seeing more and more of Jesus. So their their righteous life naturally flows out of their righteous love. The external and the internal match. Actions and affections are one, united. They are pure in heart. Shades. Pure in heart adds a new and necessary color to the picture that Jesus is painting of the truly joyful... Because it shows us that nothing on this list, and all these beatitudes, nothing on this list is meant to be merely external action performed out of duty. No. Everything. All of it is meant to flow from a heart transformed by the Holy Spirit of God to have internal affections of the light in Christ. Our external actions and our internal affections should be united, not divided. St. Augustine, a 4th and 5th century African theologian, summarizes this best. He says, a pure heart is an undivided heart. That's what it means. To be pure in heart. Pure heart is is an undivided heart. You can see this too when you look at what the other option is. The other option from being pure in heart is being hypocritical in heart. The the other option to what we're talking about is being a hypocrite versus being wholehearted. At least that's what Jesus says. Like over and over again throughout the Gospel of Matthew, this is the accusation that Jesus levels against the Pharisees, those who are only concerned about external righteousness. He accuses them of being hypocrites why because they may do all the right righteous external actions but they have no internal affection they're they're just actors putting on a show hypocrites that's what the greek term hypocrite originally meant it wasn't a negative word at all it just meant actor Someone who puts on a mask, puts on a show. What they're doing doesn't actually have anything to do with who they are as a real person. They're acting, and you can see how that word would very easily make its way into normal conversation to describe people in real life who are this way. They're disingenuous. They just put on a show. People like the Pharisees. To see what I mean, all you gotta do is go and read Matthew chapter 23. Matthew chapter 23, Jesus gives a scathing indictment of the pharisees and their hypocrisy i'll just give you a little flavor of it it's rough reading matthew 23 jesus says things like this in verse 27 woe to you scribes and pharisees hypocrites why does he call them a hypocrite for you're like whitewashed tombs which outwardly appear beautiful but within Are full of dead people's bones and all uncleanliness. So you also outwardly appear righteous to others, but within you're full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. The external and the internal, Jesus says, don't match. Actions and affections, they're not one, they're two, they're not united, they're divided, are ours. Like shades, that's the question that we ultimately have to ask ourselves or or our external actions and internal affections united or divided are they one or are they two are we wholehearted or hypocritical shades we can we can do all the right actions like do all of our religious duties we can take up all the correct social causes support all the hashtags we can post all of our prayers we can sing all the songs we can say all the words we can do it all for the love of getting likes getting pats on the back we can do it all for simply the joy of looking down in judgment on others who don't rise to our level of action we can do all of this with a heart that's devoid of true affection for Christ, that's that's living a divided life, one where we want to be perceived one way externally, righteous but inwardly Full of hypocrisy. Jesus says, like a whitewashed tomb. A more modern version of that would be like a grave covered with flowers. In other words, on the outside, it looks like there's life, flowers popping up, inside, death. It's a divided life. James, in his book, calls this being double minded. You think one way about everything because that's how you want to be perceived, but internally, your real thought, your heart is in another direction. It's being double-minded. You know what James says in James 4.8? Is the remedy to that kind of double-mindedness, double life? Being pure in heart. James 4.8, he says, purify your hearts, you double-minded. Jesus says the same thing to the Pharisees. Again, Matthew chapter 23, this time verse 25. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! For you clean the outside of the cup and the plate, but inside they're full of greed and self-indulgence. You blind Pharisee. First clean the inside of the cup so that the outside also may be clean. Do you see Jesus' logic? You can clean the outside of that dirty cup all you want to, but the inside is still dirty. It's It's a dirty cup. But, he says, clean the inside so that The outside may be clean also. Jesus' logic is pure actions can only flow from pure affections. And His logic is they must do so. Did you catch that? Clean the inside of the cup so that the outside may be clean also. In other words, this is my point. Don't think, I don't want to be misheard, misunderstood this morning, don't don't think that Jesus' emphasis on internal affection, that's what we've been talking about, right? Internal affection, purity of heart. Don't make the mistake of thinking that His emphasis on internal affection means that external action isn't important. To go that way is just another form of hypocrisy. To go the way where one would claim, I have internal, real, true, internal affection, love for God, but my external actions prove otherwise, that's hypocrisy. As a matter of fact, that's the most normal way that we in our culture define hypocrisy. When we talk about hypocrites, we normally mean people who say one thing and do another. Jesus has been talking about hypocrisy as people who do one thing, but inside they are totally aligned with something else. Both of those are types of hypocrisy. Because in both of those, the internal and the external don't match. The affections and the actions are not two, are not one, but two. They're not united. They're divided. And we've got to ask, with this definition of hypocrisy, do we fall into this category ever? Shades the reason this is the most popular definition of hypocrisy for us and our cultural context is because it is the most common thing we encounter. It's the most common type of hypocrisy we encounter, even within the church. To claim internal affection for Christ with no evidential external action. It's so prevalent in Christianity, our culture, because we have privatized and personalized Christianity. we've absorbed that from our cultural context in our cultural context religion is a privatized and personalized thing my religion is nobody's business but mine we've absorbed that into christianity where my christianity is nobody's business but mine i've got my personal relationship with jesus which is true but that's only where this thing begins it's not where it ends Christianity is primarily a communal religion. Jesus saves for Himself a people. A church. We tend to think I've got my own personal relationship with Jesus. That's between me and Him. So forget things like being a member of a church where I'm held accountable. Forget even attending church. Like I I can just say that I have right affections for Jesus and nobody has the authority to question that based on any of my actions. You can't question my religious habits. You can't question my business practices. You really can't question my political positions no matter how merciless, unrighteous, or impure any of it is. I have pure affection for Jesus because I say so. End of story. Shades. We can claim, we can claim all we want to have pure affection for Jesus. But if that affection doesn't empower pure acts of righteousness, mercy, meekness, gentleness, then in reality, our hearts are anything but pure. That's it's just another form of hypocrisy where the internal and external don't match. Or at least the in, the internal claim and the external reality don't match. The claimed affections and the performed actions are not one. They're two. They're not united. They are divided. Jesus calls us away from such a double life to a life that is whole. First, clean the inside of the cup so that the outside will be clean also. Internal and external. Matching actions and affections united not a life of hypocrisy but of wholehearted purity jesus says this is the truly joyful life truly joyful are the pure in heart that's who's truly joyful but why why are they we've asked who are the truly joyful for, excuse me, um, the pure in heart. We've talked about what that means, but, but why? That's our second question. Why are they, the pure in heart, truly joyful? The answer in Matthew 5 8 is just as clear as it was to our first question. Matthew 5 8 truly joyful are the pure in heart, for, here's why. Here's why they are the truly joyful, for they shall see God. I told the first service, I said I wonder how that hits you. That promise. And I wonder specifically if it hits you as the greatest promise that has ever been made. That's what it is. See God. It's the greatest promise there is. If you read about this throughout uh, Christian history, Uh, this promise to see, behold God, it's often called the beatific vision. You can probably hear the similar Latin root between beatific and beatitude. that's, That's on purpose. That's because the beatitudes, like we've been saying, are an invitation into the truly joyful life. The beatific vision is the consummation of the truly joyful life. It is that which ultimately, fully, and finally gives us full joy forever. Seeing God. This is everything your heart longs for, shades. I wonder, what does your heart long for? Like, put a word on it. Try. What gets you out of bed in the morning? What do you go to sleep aching for at night? What do you work and earn money for? Pursue relationships for? Raise kids or grandkids for? What does what your heart long for? Does it long for beauty? We spend all sorts of money and travel to all sorts of places to see Beauty. Your heart long for beauty like the beauty you see in a sunrise, or like the beauty that a groom sees in the face of his bride. Imagine, imagine with me a sun that is eternally rising, bursting with new colors every Moment. Imagine with me a bride and a groom whose beauty never fades but it only increases with age. This is the beauty found in the face of God that all other beauty is beckoning you towards. When you long for those small glimpses of beauty, that's what they're telling you is that you are actually made for and longing for an ultimate beauty, a beauty that is beheld in the face of God. What does your heart long for? Does it long for justice? Justice where evil is always, not not occasionally, but always held accountable. Justice where the innocent are never oppressed. Imagine a world, imagine a world where justice doesn't feel like an occasional raindrop, but but rolls down like the roar of a waterfall into an ever-flowing stream of righteousness. This is the justice that beams forth from the face of God and every desire you've ever had for any ounce of justice is ultimately a pointer to your real desire, your desire for God's justice. What does your heart long for, Shades? Does it long for love? The kind of love where you can be fully known every single thing you've ever thought felt, done, down to the deepest and darkest, murkiest places of your being, do you long to be loved where all of that can be fully known and you're still not rejected? But embraced and held until you are made whole, knowing that you will never be alone. Imagine a love like that described by the hymn writer Frederick Lehman when he says, could we with ink the ocean fill? Where the skies of parchment made, where every stalk on earth a quill and every man a scribe by trade, to write the love of God above would drain the oceans dry. And how could the scroll contain the whole, though stretched from sky to sky? Shades, that is the love that 1 John 4 8 says God is. He is love. Shades, every Longing of your heart is ultimately a longing for God. Every longing for beauty, Justice, love, or fill in the blank. It's ultimately a longing for God. Every hunger pain your stomach has ever felt is ultimately a longing for the bread of life that satisfies forever. Every thirst you've ever felt in your parched throat is ultimately a longing for the water of life, the fountain of life, the living water that quenches your parched heart forever. Every restless beat of your heart is a longing for the place it was made to rest In God. St. Augustine says it best. Our, Our hearts are restless until they rest in You. One of my favorite theologians, lead singer of Switchfoot, John Foreman, writes about the day when that comes true. One of my favorite songs. It's called Restless. And he says, I am restless looking for You. Until, until the sea of glass we meet. At last, completed and complete. Where tide and tear and pain subside and laughter drinks them dry. John was having a good day that day. Shades. To see God. This is the greatest promise that fulfills Every longing of the human heart. Rebecca Eklund uh, is a theologian at Loyola University. And she... uh She wrote a very helpful book on the Beatitudes, and at the end of this chapter, you got to imagine, she's doing a historical review of how the Beatitudes have been interpreted. So she's reading person after person throughout all of church history and what they have thought this means. And when she gets to the end of this chapter on what it would be like to see God, this is what she says. She writes, reading sermon after sermon on what it might be like to see God taught me how deeply this hope is embedded in the Christian imagination. Most of all, the vision of God is about joy. It is the ultimate end and true purpose of human existence. To see God is for the self finally to come to rest, cleansed and made. this is the greatest promise it is why the pure in heart are truly joyful because they shall see God and yes shades I understand that promise is future tense it's future tense because its final fulfillment is in the future at the sea of glass where we meet Jesus face to face right the promise of revelation 22 and verse 4 they will see his face that is a future promise but with all of the kingdom promises in the beatitudes we have seen yes their final fulfillment is future but we do already foretaste them and that's true even with this promise when it comes to seeing jesus 1 Corinthians 13 and verse 12 says, For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Yes, the ultimate fulfillment of seeing Jesus face to face is future. But even now, Paul says, we see him. Yeah, it may be like in a mirror dimly. Mirrors in the ancient world were polished metal. Okay, They're, they're, they're not like our mirrors that give a clear reflection where it's like we're looking at ourselves face to face. No, but they did still enable a kind of seeing, even if only dimly. And that's Paul's point. We can see God now in the face of Jesus Christ even if only dimly. I'll just give you three examples of how. We can see Him in the Word, in the world, and in His works. When we look into this Word, 2 Corinthians 4.6 says, we behold the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. We can see Him now in the Word. Not just here, but when we look out. At the world, at all of creation, Romans 1 and verse 20 says that the glory of God can be clearly seen through that which has been made. Psalm 19 says that the sky itself is preaching to you about the glory of God. We can see Him now in His Word, in His world, and we can see Him in His works. His works that He does in and through us. We can see Him and see His faithfulness there. Even at the deepest, darkest, hardest parts of our life where we are left lamenting. Even there, we can say with lamentations, chapter 3 and verse 22, the steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. Do you not, when you look at your life and God at work in and through it, is this not the conclusion you come to? Do you not see and behold His glory, His face? Great is His faithfulness. Shades, we can see the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ even now in the Word, in the world, in His works. And shades, if I say, like, I hear that, Jonathan, but I can't say it. I, I, I can't see it. If If I can't see everything that I was just describing, then I've got to ask myself, is it because I'm being blinded by hypocrisy? The hypocrite, remember that's the opposite of wholeheartedness is hypocrisy. The hypocrite cannot see the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ because the hypocrite is not concerned with seeing, they are only concerned with being seen. Do you see? They're turned in on themselves. They're only concerned with how they're perceived. They're not concerned with perceiving anything outside of themselves. Matthew 6 and verse 1, Jesus says, Beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them. He goes on to say, if that's all you really want, then that's all the reward you're, you'll get. Your reward will be being seen instead of the reward of seeing. Shades. The hypocrite can't see the glory of God because their life is focused inward on how they are being perceived. All of their energy is poured into keeping up appearances, living that double life, that divided life. How incredibly exhausting is that? You ever tried? It's absolutely and utterly exhausting. And that's why Jesus opens his arms and extends an invitation of hope. Come to me all who are weary and heavy laden trying to live that double life. I'll give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. I will empower you internally to live the way I've called you to live externally. A whole life. A life of rest. Jesus opens the door of hope to us this morning by inviting us into a life that is whole. Shades, you have a hope. You have a hope of not living a double life. You have a hope of a pure heart empowered to be pure by the Holy Spirit of God. You have a hope of not unsatisfyingly living to be seen but living to see that which satisfies. Him Shades, don't be blinded by hypocrisy. No, instead, see, see wholeheartedly. See Jesus with a pure heart. 1 John 3, verses 2 and 3 says, Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared. In other words, there is a day coming when we will be made perfect and pure. That's not yet, but what we will be It has not yet appeared, but we know that when he appears, we shall be like him because we will see him as he is. The day will come when we see Jesus face to face and we will be made perfect and pure. But until then, the very next verse says, and everyone who thus hopes in him purifies himself now, even as he is pure. Do you get the apostle's logic right there? He's saying, Because we will see Jesus face to face, because we will be made perfectly pure one day, we do seek him now with a pure heart now. And that leads us to the final question how? we, We know who the truly joyful are, the pure in heart. We know why they're truly joyful? Because they shall see God. So that just leaves one question. How? How do we pursue a heart that is pure? I've just got three quick things to close. Affections, confession, adoration. Affections, confession, adoration. First, affections. This morning. This morning as we've been looking at the word, have affections been bubbling up in your heart? With a real desire to see More and more of Christ. This is where a pure heart begins with with the affections. And Chase, hear me. If you don't feel them, pray for them. Affections are not something you can flip like a switch and just turn on yourself. This is a work of the Holy Spirit of God in our hearts. Pray for them. The Apostle Paul does in Ephesians chapter 1 and verse 18. He prays. For the Ephesians, that the eyes of their hearts will be opened, that they may behold the glory of God. God will open the eyes of their heart, birth in them affections that desire Him. We pray this. We sing about our longing for this, do we not? Go old school 90s with me for just a second. How many of you sang? Open the eyes of my heart, Lord. Because I want to see you. That's a request. Asking God to do this. Open the eyes of my heart. Give me the affections. Affections is where the pursuit of a pure heart begins. How do we pursue a pure heart now? Through affections. Second, confession. Confession. The pure in heart are not those who are perfect. I don't want to be misunderstood as saying that this morning. Like, oh, well, the pure in heart are those whose internal affections and external actions always match perfectly desiring Jesus now and always. No, 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 no. The Pharisees are the ones who pretended to be perfect. The pure in heart admit when their affections go awry. They are externally honest about what's really going on internally. See, the external and internal, they still match. They're still being pure, open, and honest, pure in heart. They're they're being like David in Psalm 51 and verse 10. David in Psalm 51 is confessing his sin before the Lord, and this is what he prays. Create in me a clean, pure heart. He's open, he's honest. God, I don't have a clean, pure heart right now. Create in me a pure heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. How do we pursue a pure heart? Our affections lead us to confession. That's why we do a confession every week to a confession, to come before the Lord and, and be open and honest. Our affections lead us to confession, but they don't leave us there. They lead us through it to what is on the other side, adoration. Third thing, how do we pursue a pure heart? Adoration. This is what Advent invites us to, does it not? Advent invites us to come. Oh, let us come and adore Him. Advent invites us to adore Christ now because He has come. And Advent invites us to adore Christ forever because He will come again. Advent invites us to adoration and so do the Beatitudes. The Beatitude we've gone through this morning. It invites us to come and adore christ does it not to come and see him now even if only dimly in a mirror as it were and it invites us to see him forever fully and finally face to face advent and this beatitude hold out an invitation of hope and we answer it through adoration Not a mechanical, external action. No, but through heartfelt adoration that pours out in action. I told you at the beginning of our time that hope is the door by which we enter into the season of Advent. And the beatitude of Matthew 5.8 shows us how to walk through that door. Affection, confession, adoration. A pure heart is the path to full joy in the presence of God. Shades. Who are the truly joyful? the pure in heart. Why are they truly joyful? They shall see God. Jesus invites you into that hope now and forever. My prayers, your pastor is that this Advent season may we answer this invitation. Shades, come, let us, this Advent season, come, let us see Him, more and more of Him. Let us adore Him with a pure heart and clean hands. Come, let us adore Him, Christ our Lord.